Good morning. We're going to get started here if you want to find your seat. There are notes on the back. It is a packet if you want. I gave everyone two pages and stapled it to maybe like discourage you guys if you're like, oh, this is too much. No, it's a joke. We're finishing up the Book of the Twelve, or maybe as we're used to calling it, the Minor Prophets. So if you were here last week, you know that we covered two. So we have ten to cover. So we have ten books, and we have 45 minutes. So we'll try to move through fast. So find your seat. Settle down with your conversations here, people. We're going to get started. Let me begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the book of Amos. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we get to gather as your people. Lord, I pray that um, just this time together uh, and this equipping hour would be encouraging to our hearts, that we would um, come away changed as we study your word, that we would see more of who you are, that we would be in awe of you, that we would worship you, um, that we would know you as you have revealed yourself in scripture. So be with us now as we quickly move through um, some of these books that oftentimes we neglect. Help us to be focused such that we can come back in days and weeks and months and years to come and study these books and be edified. Be with us now. Amen. All right, so Amos, book of Amos. Again, like I said, you ain't got much time. So I'm trying to stick to my schedule here, and hopefully you guys have been enjoying this it's been fun for me. It's been a challenge. It's been a really big challenge, but it's good to every now and then get a big picture of what's going on in these books, especially these smaller minor prophets that I don't know about you guys, but I typically skip over them or just read them and I don't know what's going on. And so I just move on to the next book. Um, so again, the, the design of this class is not to go through verse by verse by verse. I'd be more than happy to do that maybe in the future uh, with, with some of these books, but we're trying to get big picture. So that way you can Come back to this, like I said, in the future and know what's going on. So, by the way, we didn't skip Daniel. Well, we, we did skip Daniel, but, like, we're going to come back and hit Daniel again. So maybe you're just, like, reading along. It's like, whoa, we skipped Daniel. Uh, yes, we did, but we're going to come back to it. And one of the reasons why is um, Daniel does a really good job, I think, of, of bringing us over into the New Testament. Um, and there's a lot of stuff going on in Daniel, so I want to study it a little bit more before we get to it. Um, but we, we will come back and hit Daniel. But we are in Amos. So if this is your first time here with us, you need to have your Bible open because we're looking at a lot of verses and we're moving through relatively quick. So Amos. Amos. We got into it a little bit last week. If you remember those opening chapters, you have this structure. Uh, remember Amos is ministering right around or um, before uh, Isaiah in the northern kingdom. Okay, so the northern kingdom, real bad, okay? They're taken into exile, final exile, by Assyria in 722 B.C., and so Amos is ministering to them before that. And if you're looking with me here, right, in Amos, we looked at this structure. Amos chapter 1, verse 3, and he says, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. And then you come down, chapter 1, verse 6, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. I will not revoke the punishment. And you see that throughout. Verse 9, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four. Verse 11, for three transgressions of Edom and for four. 13, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four. Chapter 2, verse 1, for three transgressions of Moab and for four. And then you come, chapter 2, verse 4, 
Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. And so what you have going on is the, the prophet, he's, he's preaching to the northern kingdom, and he's going through all their enemies, all their surrounding countries. And they're like, yeah, God's going to get them. Oh, yeah, get them, God, get them. They're so evil, they're so wicked. And he comes to the southern kingdom. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, that's our younger brother, and they need to get punished. Ah! And then chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not provoke, uh, revoke the punishment. And then this list is even longer. And so the, the focus of these oracles is actually that the judgment is coming biggest, if you want to say, and most foremost for who? For Israel, for the northern kingdom. They are not going to be spared because of their sin. You need to repent. Everyone else has it coming to you. So do you, Israel. Judgment is coming. So now, that's what we looked at last week. We just got into it. Chapter 3. Should have that up on the screen. I, this is a, it's one of those verses where it's like maybe you see on like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like, like a Hallmark card for like how much God loves you and God knows you and all this stuff. The first part, you know, brought, brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And it's just like, man, that's so great. Therefore, I will punish you. For all your iniquities, right? Like, like it's this like amazing blessing. These were the God's chosen people, but yet for that very reason, they're going to be punished, right? Um, so I don't know. I just it's okay. Like you can sometimes verses are ironic, and it's just you can kind of chuckle. But also we should be warned, right? You know, if you bring it over into where we are today, you know, thinking of the church, you only have I known of all the peoples of the earth. And we have even higher accountability because of what we know and what God has revealed to us. So you see that in chapter 3. This is why uh, their sin is so great. Because God has known them, flip over to chapter 4. You see kind of another structural uh, marker here in chapter 4, verse 6. You kind of see, you know, ESV subtitle, Israel has not returned to the Lord. Verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. That's that key phrase, yet you did not return to me. Verse 8, yet you did not return to me. Verse 9, yet you did not return to me. Verse 10, at the end, yet you did not return to me. Verse 11, yet you did not return to me. You did not do all these things. In light of all that I had done for you, you did not come back to me. And therefore, you see in verse 12, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Whoa. Prepare to meet your maker. Because of their sin, judgment is coming. The Lord of hosts is his name. He is coming. Chapter 5, there is still, as we see all throughout in the prophets, God still offers repentance. You see this in chapter 5. See what I've got up there. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Chapter 5, verse 6, seek the Lord and live. You jump over to verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord let me see, do I have that up there? No, I don't. I'll stop reading. I'm trying to cut out stuff, and I can't remember. So we're trying to go through 10 books real fast. Jump over to the next page, verse 18. Remember we looked at this, the day of the Lord, right? 
we spent a lot of time last week looking at the day of the Lord and Joel and also some of the other books. Verse 18, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Verse 20, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? He's saying, hey, you guys don't want the day of the Lord because it's judgment coming. You guys don't want this. You need to turn from your ways. I like this in chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. You've got this picture of these, these guys. They're just chilling in Zion. They're just like, hey, everything's good. We're chill. Everything's fine. Verse 5 of chapter 6. These people chilling in Zion who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. Right? In light of all this sin that's going on, all this evil, all this wickedness, you just got... You know, these people in Zion, they're just chilling, singing new songs. They're just like, hey, everything's good. We're the new David. We can write songs. Everything's fine. Am I the only one that finds that funny? I don't know. No, this is not good. These guys should not be at ease. They need to repent. They need to turn from their ways. Chapter 7. Chapter 7, you have this series of warning visions. And if you remember, I talked about this last week, but kind of what's going on in Amos, you know, you even have there in your notes, the nature of God's judgment. It's that God's judgment is righteous and fair. His judgment is not, he doesn't go above and beyond, right? Like sometimes, you know, like if, you, if you're parents and you have kids, like sometimes you realize like, man, I probably should not have come down as hard as I, you know, did on my kid. Or maybe, you know, I actually should have judged them more seriously. There should have been more punishment. The Lord never does that. There's never a like, oh, I, I did too much or I did too little. It is perfect. It is fair. And that's what's going on in chapter 7 here. You have these kind of the series of warning visions, and Amos is saying, you know, no, don't do this. It'd be too much, and God says, okay, I'm not going to do that. Don't do this. It's going to be too much, and then you have in verse 7, Amos 7, chapter uh, 7, verse 7, this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand, and basically what you have going on here is this, this plumb line is basically the standard of judgment. God is not going to exceed go above or beneath the line. It's going to be exactly just. You could say God's punishment fits the crime. God's punishment fits the crime. He doesn't go above and beyond. Chapter 9, chapter 9. Again, in chapter 8, you have a lot of this um, more day of the Lord. Judgment is coming, and on that day, all these things, these bad things are going to happen. Chapter 9, verse 1. This was really interesting in, in studying this this last week or two. It says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And what he's talking about here is an earthquake. And you're like, what in the world? Like, this is kind of random. Like, why are we talking about an earthquake? If you look back at Amos chapter 1, verse 1, you know, he gives his introduction, the words of Amos, who's standing, you know, all this, days of Uzziah, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. That's actually in his introduction. He's talking about an earthquake. And you're like, okay, he's talking about an earthquake. And it doesn't show back up again until Amos 9, verse 1. And basically what you have is this warning that Amos is saying, hey, the earthquake, you could say, is a preview of coming attractions. This horrible judgment is nothing in comparison to the judgment that is coming. This is the warning shot, right? The earthquake is that warning shot. And what's interesting, Zechariah 14, 
actually pick, so this is hundreds of years later, Zechariah 14, Zechariah mentions this earthquake. He's like, it's going to be worse than the earthquake in the days of Amos. So I don't think he's talking about just a symbolic earthquake. I think an earthquake actually happened because Zechariah says one did. And that is a preview of a worse judgment that's going to come. So be warned and turn away. Amos 9 verse 11, if you want to flip over there. The restoration of Israel, like most of the prophets do, they end with hope. Chapter 9, verse 11, in that day, this coming day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. Now, generally what the prophets do is they say the house of David, right? Like the house of David is going to be restored. Well, here it's just a booth because it's been devastated. It's been destroyed. But there's going to come a day that the Lord will raise up that booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. It's interesting what he does in verse 13 there. Just think about this picture. The plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. So you have this picture of like, people, we farm, right? This is Bakersfield. We know agriculture somewhat, okay? Like, you plant, and then, like, a bunch of time later, you then harvest, right? Like, I don't know, whenever the season is when you plant grapes or whatever. But it's not like you plant grapes, and at the same time, the dude is, like, harvesting grapes, right? Like, I'm no expert, but I don't think that's what happens, okay? And what you have here, look at this. The treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. So the guy who's picking grapes, like, the guy can't sow fast enough. He can't plant seed. Like, they're, they're, you see what he's doing there? The plowman is overtaking the reaper. Like, they're planting for next season while the guy is harvesting. Like, this is amazing. And the mountains are going to drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. And I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. It's interesting that, um, I just had to mention this, um, Peter in Acts 15, right, you have the Jerusalem council, and you've kind of got this issue of, um, hey, should the, how do the Gentiles, you know, how are they incorporated into the people of God, and how all this stuff works. Peter quotes this passage, and he's actually, he, he does some, he changes the verses a little bit, and I think what he's doing is he's building together a whole Old Testament theology case. He's not just quoting from this passage, but he actually has the whole Testament. But it's interesting, he doesn't quote verse 13 to the end. He talks about Jesus, the son of David, and he's actually talking about his second coming, I would argue, in that passage, when he's going to restore um, the kingdom. But he doesn't quote verses 13 to the end. The passages that talk about, you know, the, the physical, um, you know, prosperity. And so the reason why I think that is, is because Peter's still saying, not that those things were symbolic, but that's still to come in the future. Does that make sense? Okay, next book. Obadiah. And we are going to move fast, okay? The vision of Obadiah. There's some debate over when Obadiah is written. Could be very early, um, as in before all the prophets we've looked at so far. We just don't know exactly Um, And one of the reasons why is if you look Obadiah verse 1, 
Look what it says, the vision of Obadiah. Okay, great. I don't know who you are. Like, when, when are you ministering? What kingdom? We don't know. And so trying to date the book is a little uh, difficult. But the message is, is clear. God's vengeful judgment. God will avenge his people. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Does anyone remember, like, who's Edom? Like, who are they descendants of? Esau. Yeah, something with a shoe. Something weird with the shoe, maybe. I don't know. I can't remember that part. Um, but yeah, you got Jacob and Esau, right? And there's a struggle between those two. And what you have going on here is that there's going to be judgment for Edom, for the descendants of Esau. If you want to look that up, Genesis 36 is where Edom, well, the descendants of Esau is mentioned, and we get the name Edom. Uh, if you look in verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Verse 4, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So your high mountain cities can't protect you. Verses 5 through 7, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, um, you know, Grape brothers came to you. Verse 6, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Verse 7, basically what he's saying there is it would have been better if you had just been robbed in the middle of the night. This judgment is going to be worse. You're going to wish that that would have happened to you. This is Obadiah, verse 15. We, say, we see that day of the Lord theology picked up again. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, not just Edom. And you actually kind of see in the Minor Prophets, Edom kind of representing all the world that, that's, that's opposed to the Lord in much of the way that kind of, you know, like Isaiah uses Babylon, okay? They, they stand for those nations opposed to God. As you have done, it shall be done to you. As you have been evil and attacked God's people, God is going to do the same to you. Your deed shall return on your own head. Judgment is coming for you. You have this uh, kind of like the series of warnings before that. I, I forgot to mention 10 to 14. If you're like, what's going on in there? You just see over and over what? Do not, do not, do not, do not. He's saying, hey, don't do this. You need to turn from your ways. Even eat them. But judgment is coming for you. Verse 17 of Obadiah. There's no chapters. It's just one. So that's why I'm not saying Obadiah chapter one. It's just Obadiah verse 17. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. And you see this, this triumph of Israel, that there's going to be a, a restoration, that there's going to be a completion of the conquest, what Israel failed to do in the days of the kings and um, in the days of Joshua. They will possess all these lands, and that's what's going on in verses uh, 19 to the end. He's talking about the kingdom of the Lord. Verse 21, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So what I would say is that after the day of the Lord, what Obadiah is saying here, there's going to be a time when the Lord actually possesses a kingdom on the earth, when they actually possess all um, the land that they failed to complete. So judgment is coming for Edom. Go to Jonah. Jonah. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I feel like of all the minor prophets, this is the one we know, right? Because of the VeggieTales movie. Um, we know Jonah, right? This is written uh, before the northern kingdom is taken into exile by Assyria, right? And Nineveh is their capital city. So like literally in 50 years, this nation that Jonah is going to is going to take 
his people into captivity, right? And so it's kind of like, I mean, I don't know, I can't think of a modern illustration, but it's like, let's just say, oh, I don't know, Russia and China, they're just dominating everything. And it's like, hey, they're going to destroy you in 50 years. But guess what? You need to go to Beijing or whatever and, and preach salvation even for them. Like, part of me does not want to do that because they're going to destroy my country, right? Like, that's kind of like the impulse. And um, good comedic relief there. Um, right? But that's what Jonah is called to do, right? He's called to go to this enemy country. Jonah and Israel, because they, they hate these Gentile pagan nations, and that's where he's called to go. Jonah flees from the Lord. You guys know the story. It's actually really interesting what uh, the author of the book is, who I would argue is Jonah. Um, kind of in the earlier section, he's, he's saying, hey, you need to go to um, Nineveh. He goes the exact opposite direction. Then you kind of see it's really neat what he does in the first chapter is Jonah goes down. He uses the word down a lot in chapter one. He's trying to signify he's going the exact opposite. He's going away from the Lord, ultimately into the belly of a big fish, right? Down, 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 and he's going away. So you have in, uh, again, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but in Jonah 3, verse 9, this is interesting. This is the, the king of Nineveh. He's saying, hey, you know, we need to turn from our ways and the violence that's in our hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And if you guys remember um, uh, Joel, this is Joel chapter 2, verse 14 here on the right. It's the exact same language. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent. Joel is talking about Israel, but the king of um, Nineveh picks up that language. Who knows? God may turn and relent. And then you have in Jonah 4, verse 2, it's really ironic. He says, hey, you know, the people are repenting and turning from their ways. Jonah's saying, God, this is exactly why I didn't want to come, because I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he's quoting from Exodus 34, 6, where God reveals, yes, this is who I am. So, so Jonah knew who God was, but it didn't change his attitude and his response to those who needed the God who is gracious and merciful, right? He responded with arrogance and hatred towards those who needed God's grace. That's why he didn't want to extend that to Nineveh. So that's Jonah. If you want to talk about it more after, more than happy to do that. Micah. Flip over to Micah. Micah is uh, ministry in the southern kingdom around the same time as Isaiah. So right around when Assyria takes the northern kingdom. And what you have here is judgment is coming. And you're like, wow, I feel like this is really common in the prophets. Yes, right? We spend a lot of time talking about this. Judgment, and on the other side of judgment, hope, restoration. God will have forgiveness. You have in uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Hear you peoples, all of you pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his temple, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, out from his temple, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. They're, they're wicked altars. Judgment is coming for you, O Israel. Chapters 2 and 3, if you're like, what's going on there? They're wicked, okay? They're, they're sinful. <laughs> Chapter 4. Chapter 4. This is fascinating to me, and hopefully to you. This is like a verbatim, word-for-word -word quote from Isaiah chapter 2. 
I don't know if you guys remember that, Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 4. Micah says the exact same thing, but then he adds a little more. I didn't highlight any verses because I just highlight the whole thing, okay? So it's amazing. He's looking forward to these these latter days on the other side of judgment, that the mountain of the house of the Lord, this place in Zion, God's temple, it's going to be the highest of places, and many nations, not just Israel, are going to come to it. They're going to stream up to the house of the Lord. These, you know, they're going to beat their swords into plowshares. Again, this, this amazing prosperity. But look at this. This is amazing. This is, this is so cool. I don't know how, like, the more and more you just study the Bible, I'm amazed at how the biblical authors cite earlier scripture. They're not dummies. I think that's one of the things, um, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about chronological snobbery, where it's just like, hey, people 500 years ago, they're just stupid, and we just know more now. They're just dumb. And it's just like, no, I would actually argue we're probably getting dumber. Um, that's what I would argue. Um, but especially with the biblical authors, that yes, it's the very word of God, and that God, by his spirit, spoke through men, but it's not that the men didn't know their Bibles and were drawing on previous scripture. And so look at this. Um, let me see, I have Micah 4.4. 4. So after this, hey, this glorious restoration, the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be lifted up. All the nations are going to flow. He says, every man is going to sit under his vine and under his fig tree, okay? And if you guys remember this, if you look back to, this is 1 Kings chapter 4, that middle section, 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25, when he's looking at the prosperity of Solomon, I would argue Solomon was the greatest king that Israel ever had in terms of prosperity. And because the authors seem to be pointing to that. Every man is sitting under his vine and under his fig tree. And it's like, whoa, this is this amazing time. So Micah is pointing to a day that's going to be as great as Solomon, if not greater. That there's going to be an amazing time of prosperity. And we'll get to this because, well, maybe, I don't have much hope. But when we get to Zechariah, <laughs> Zechariah picks up on this. Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. You're like, dude, why are you so excited about vines and fig trees? Well, the reason why is because the biblical authors are picking specific vocabulary to make us think certain things. That the coming kingdom of the Lord for all the nations, another thing I'm trying to say is this, all these kingdom promises have not been fulfilled, okay? It's not just symbolic, it's not just, hey, we're just talking about some just ideal future. I think the biblical authors are specific with their vocab to point, point forward to a specific future. Does that make sense? It's going to be greater than the days of Solomon. And you know this because Zechariah is written after they return from exile. They're back in the land. Okay, well, if all the land promises have been fulfilled, why is Zechariah still talking about future land promises still to come? Okay? There's still a glorious restoration for God's people, and I think that's consistent all throughout the prophets. Okay, I need to move fast because we're running out of time. That's Micah 4. It's amazing, okay? Uh, chapter 5, you guys are familiar with this, right? Uh, but from you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. The, we know that, right? Hey, Jesus, he's going to be born in the house of David, okay? Where David was born. Okay, boom. That's all I need to say, right? Uh, verse 7 of that, you know, the remnants of God's people is going to return on the other side of judgment. Um, in there, it talks about how this leader, this Messiah, is going to shepherd his flock. He's going to be the faithful, good shepherd. You come to the end of chapter 7 of Micah. And the remnant is going to return. There's going to be a second exodus. I've hit on this many times, right? There's going to be a second exodus for God's people where God brings his people out from the nations and he brings them back to the land. Okay, that's Micah. Nahum. Nahum, super fast. This is all you need to know. 
Nahum is Jonah's wish come true. Nahum is Jonah's dream come true. Because the judgment of Nineveh, judgment of Assyria, what Jonah wanted. And Nahum is saying, hey, that's going to happen because of their sin. That is going to happen. You see in here, uh, this is Nahum 1 verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. And he seems to be alluding there to uh, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, right? Where he talks about how Yahweh is a jealous God. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And he's going back to Exodus 34 there. So he's preaching the Old Testament. He's preaching the Old Covenant. He's preaching the Mosaic Law. And he's saying, hey, judgment is coming for you guys. Justice for all the nations because of their wickedness, their sin against God. So that's the judgment of Assyria, okay? Habakkuk. Habakkuk. So Nahum's talking about Assyria, judgment coming for them. Habakkuk is talking about Babylon, judgment is coming for them. So both nations that took the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom, God's taking care of them. I mean, one thing that's on display clearly throughout all the prophets, and especially Daniel when we get there, is God's sovereignty over the nations. I mean, he raises kings up, he brings kings down, the world superpowers of the day ain't got nothing on God. I mean, he is just moving as he wishes. So Habakkuk, the faithful in God's judgment, you could say this book is about embracing suffering by faith, all right? So exile for the southern kingdom is on the horizon. This is going to come. And how do you get through that? By faith. By faith. And we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But you see in Habakkuk, I'm going to move through this pretty quick. We heard a sermon on this, I think, relatively recently. So hopefully you remember it. If not, talk to me afterwards. Um, but Habakkuk, he's concerned about the southern kingdom. Verse 4, the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Hey, we're wicked. God, do something. Um, God says in his response, the Lord's answer there, he says, hey, I'm going to do something. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. Um, you see that here. I, this was really, again, interesting things. Maybe you learned something. Uh, Habakkuk 1 verse 8. God's talking about this nation that's going to come and judge them. It says their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. And you're like, what in the world? Why are you talking about all this? Well, actually... Because in the promises, for, um, promises of blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience in Deuteronomy, this is mentioned. This is Deuteronomy 20, uh, 28, verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. It's the only time in the Old Testament, these two places, where there's a language of far away, a nation coming from far away, coming in judgment like an eagle. So it's just one of those things. It was interesting. If you guys are still watching the YouTube videos, uh, uh, G.K. Beale, he's talking about this, this problem passage in the Old Testament. And if I'm on a rabbit trail, it's going somewhere, and hopefully it's interesting. Um, he's talking about this problem passage in the Old Testament. And a liberal critical scholar responds to him. I thought it was really funny. He's like, you just think that if you study the Bible hard enough that you're going to find an answer. If you just do enough work, you're going to find some answer. And Bueller's like, yeah, that's actually exactly what I think. He's like, yeah, the problem is not with us. Or, I mean, excuse me, the problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with us and our interpretation. And so, for me, it was a helpful, like, kind of like apologetic moment. If there's something random or obscure that you find in the Old Testament, it's probably actually not that random or obscure, right? We just need to do good homework. 
and go, oh man, the reason why he's talking about this, the reason why he's talking about you know, horsemen from afar and an eagle is because that's actually what Deuteronomy 28 talked about. Judgment is coming for them. So that was just an aside. But judgment is coming, okay? Uh, Habakkuk, God is going to use the Babylonians. Habakkuk responds, hey, they're more wicked than us. And God responds in chapter 2, oh, this is later on, chapter 2, verse 4. It's where we get that famous, you know, the righteous shall live by faith, right? Habakkuk 2, verse 4 that uh, Paul will pick up on. And really what he's going on here is, yes, justification by faith alone, but really in the light of trials and judgment, we still live by faith. In light of suffering and persecution and all these things going on around us, we live by faith. We trust in the promises of God. He says he's going to keep his word, and so we trust in him. You flip over, this is uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Habakkuk 2, verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk is just quoting Isaiah. He's just picking up on Isaiah. If you remember Isaiah 6.3, right, where Isaiah sees the throne room of the Lord. He's holy, 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 high and lifted up. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Isaiah 11, verse 9, there shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk is picking right up on that. But there will come a day when the whole earth is going to be full with God's glory and that all nations, all peoples will know him. And so that's what's going on there. We've got to move quick. Zephaniah. Zephaniah. This is uh, southern kingdom. Again, the rest of these all throughout are southern kingdom. Before the exile. Um, you see in chapter 1, verse 2. Judgment, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. God's going to give the earth a clean slate. He's got to start over, okay? He's starting over because of their sin. You see, again, the day of the Lord over and over and over in here. Verse 7, the day of the Lord. Verse 8, the day of the Lord. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord. The sound of the day of the Lord. Verse 15, a day, a day, a day, a day. Judgment is coming. Verse 18, day of the wrath of the Lord is coming. You need to be warned. Seek the Lord while you can. And that's exactly what he says in chapter 2, verse 3. The day of the anger of the Lord is coming, so seek the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. You come to the end of Zephaniah, chapter 3. This is amazing. Chapter 3, verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples. So not just Israel or some nations, all the nations, to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. So there's going to be a future reversal of the Tower of Babel where all the nations will understand. This is going to be, verse 11, on my holy mountain. Verse 17, Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one, who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. It's the only place in the Bible where, God's, where it says God sings. And God's going to sing over his people with rejoicing. There's this glorious day, verse 20, at the time I will bring you in, take you. And when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes. Okay? So that's kind of the last one, before exile. I got five minutes. We can get through this. We'll do it. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are written either during the people returning to the land or after, okay? 
during, while the nations are coming back, right? When Darius comes on the scene, we'll get to this in Daniel. We'll, we'll give you some context. But what you have going on is Haggai in particular is talking about the temple, okay? And the temple, I can't talk about this, but the temple is very, very significant to God's promise of redemption, okay? It's not just random, right? It's not, it's, it signifies God's relationship with his people. A physical temple is actually very important, and Haggai talks about that, okay? Um, this is Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, for thus says the Lord, uh, verse 7, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house, his temple, with glory. So this is a, a future time when he's going to do that. Verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. So in other words, what he's saying is that this, this latter, that this glory that's going to come, this glory is going to be way better, way greater than the first, okay? And I think, what is Haggai drawing on? Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 to 48, this coming temple of the Lord. Um, Zerubbabel, this is neat stuff, but Zerubbabel is mentioned in the line of Christ in Matthew 1, okay? He's faithful, and so he's in there, okay? <laughs> There's more I could say, but I don't have time. Zechariah. Zechariah. And the reason why I don't have time is because I wanted to spend like 15 minutes on Zechariah, but we have like two. So, um, yes, we're in trouble. Uh, Zechariah. Zechariah, I know I say this all the time, like this book is amazing, but Zechariah actually is really amazing. Okay. Um, Zechariah is written after the return from exile. Okay. He's around the same time as, as Haggai. And the reason we know this is because I mentioned Ezra 5 1. Ezra 5, verse 1. It's like, oh, Haggai and Zechariah, okay? You could say this. All the prophets are doing this, but I would say especially so. Zechariah and Daniel are kind of drawing all these pieces from the Old Testament and kind of, you could say, maybe repackaging them and clarifying them and then pointing us forward into the New Testament. So, like, if you're confused on, like, okay, when is this going to happen? When is this? Blah, 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 blah. Daniel and Zechariah are, are, are drawing all those things and saying, boom, here it is, condensed package, you know, priority mail shipping to the New Testament, okay? That's kind of what those two books are doing. And, and especially Zechariah is filled with quotes and allusions to prior Old Testament passages, okay? Um, I don't have time to talk about this. Uh, next slide. <laughs> uh, what chapter is this? Chapter 8, verse 3. Yes, we'll talk about this. Um, you have, oh, I'm skipping a bunch of stuff. You know what, we might come back and just talk about Zechariah later, because it's really cool. Or I'll, I'll come, we don't need to talk about the Psalms that much. Um, uh, Zechariah is really cool. You have this series of visions, okay? I need, I need to go by my notes here a little bit more. The night visions, you guys see that, point 2? Zechariah 1, 7. Ignore the slides for a little bit. You, you have eight night visions, okay? Just write that down. Eight night visions, okay? Zechariah 1, 7 to 6, 8. And what you have is, is what we call a chiasm, okay? And what, it's like, what is that? It means that the visions kind of like mirror each other, okay? So vision 1 echoes and mirrors vision 8, okay? Vision 2 mirrors and echoes vision 7, okay? 
Vision three, six, four, five, okay? And it's when you actually get to the middle of that section that it's kind of like the most important thing, okay? So if you're like structure, how am I reading Zechariah? Just do that with the visions, okay? The eight visions there, those night visions. And they're all getting at this point, that, that the temple is going to be rebuilt in a renewed land. In a renewed land. He's pointing forward to a future time. Uh, he mentions a, this, this is interesting, in chapter 2, verse 1, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line, a measuring man, measuring man. Ezekiel 40 also mentions a measuring man. Ezekiel 40, verse 3, talking about the temple. Zechariah, he's also talking about a measuring man. What other book, maybe it's filled with all kinds of like crazy things. Well, not really that crazy, but it's just like symbols, and we're like, we don't know how to interpret that book super well. Revelation, right? He also mentions a measuring man, okay? And so just remember that. Measuring man, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Revelation, measuring man. Oh, they're, looking, they're talking about the same thing, okay? You also have in chapter 4, there's some amazing stuff in here. Chapter 4, he talks about these uh, two olive trees and these two lampstands, and they're like, what in the world? Like, what is he talking about? And Zechariah, <laughs> I love this, verse 13, Zechariah 4, verse 13, he said to me, do you not know what these are? <laughs> and Zechariah's like, I said, no, my Lord, like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And the Lord says, verse 14, these are the two anointed ones who stand by uh, the Lord of the whole earth. And it's these two witnesses, and they're actually picked up in Revelation 11, verses 1 to 4. And so you can see this. The author of Revelation, John, is picking up on Ezekiel. He's picking up on Zechariah, and he's bringing these things forward. Okay, now chapter 8. Chapter 8. You have this, I, I have it here, the practice of assurance. You have the same language of a second exodus. I've returned to Zion, God himself, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain, language we've seen before. Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people. I will be their God. It goes back to Leviticus 26, verse 12, in faithfulness and in righteousness. So God will bring his people back. Verse 20 of chapter 8, Israel is going to be a light amongst all the nations, peoples shall yet come. And they're going to say, hey, come, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. He's drawing on Isaiah 2, Isaiah 4, Isaiah 11. Go up. Um, you have in chapter, we can't talk about this. We'll talk about this in Psalms because it's really cool. Um, chapter 12. Chapter 12. This is an amazing, amazing passage where Yahweh is speaking, and he says, I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And we're quick to jump over and say, oh yeah, it's Jesus. Well, in Zechariah 12, it's actually Yahweh speaking. And so it's a specific uh, claim to deity and um, you know, uh, the second person of the Trinity when John picks this up. This is John 19, verse 37. Right? And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. John is just quoting Zechariah 12.10 and saying, that's talking about Jesus. And John also in Revelation 1 verse 7. This is amazing. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Underline that, write that down somewhere, because we're gonna, that's a very important phrase when we come to Daniel. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. 
So there's coming a day when all peoples will look on the Messiah whom they have pierced. Uh, Zechariah 14, well, and 13. Amazing restoration stuff, okay? There, there is this glorious hope for the remnant of God's people. God will wage war. He's going to reign in glory, and it's going to be epic. Malachi, real quick. Very, very quick. He's the last prophet before 400 years of silence, basically, okay? He's the last prophet until we come over to the New Testament, the final word of the Lord until we come to the Gospels. And you see God's love for his people, right? We see this in, picked up in Romans 9. This is Malachi 1 verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And so God's love for his people means he is not going to abandon them. Malachi is calling um, God's people to repent, to trust in the Lord. Um, this is the very end. But chapter 3, uh, he alludes to uh, Elijah. He's talking about John the Baptist. And when he comes on the scene in the Gospels, we know what he's alluding to, Malachi. You see the very end here. This is Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And this is Luke 1, 17. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And so it's just a direct quote, an allusion to Malachi chapter 4, and that's Mark 1. So I know that was very fast, um, and we didn't cover everything I wanted to cover, but that's kind of the way some of these classes go. Um, I need to dismiss you, so if you have questions, which I would understand if you did, um, please come talk to me. Next week, we're going to look at Job, Psalms, and Ruth. Ruth, I'm going to hit very fast because it should have been covered in the other section because it's just like the perfect addition to Judges, okay? So Ruth will be very, very quick, and then we'll spend some time in Job and probably a lot of time in Psalms talking about some of the stuff that I didn't get to talk about this morning. You're dismissed.